Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in foggy, gray, Shanghai, China, for this, the 100th episode of Deep State Radio. And I am joined. Who exactly? And I am joined by our core group of regulars that you can find in their usual places in London, England. We have Corey Shockey of Double I, Double S. And what's the weather like in London, England, Corey? Well, uh, it is overcast, and I miss the cerulean blue skies of my native land of California, David. Well, they miss you. I'm sure that that's true. And in Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we have David Sanger of the New York Times. And what's the weather like there? It's a perfect English summer's day. Yeah, it was actually... (laughs) Decently cool, although I have to say I just came out of um, the, the Great Isles of Great Britain, and it was better there than it is here. So well, that's because here it's sunny with a predominance of meatballs. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. Wow. wow, that is just the, that's the level of erudition that we expect for every episode of Deep State Radio. <laughs> no, that's the erudition we get a hundred a hundred sessions in. It was really yeah. bad on session one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is the we're, game. We're working our way up. By the end of the summer, we should be to Dr. Seuss. Um, Guys, it's 100 episodes, and the world has not been appreciably improved by Deep State Radio. The world is still a big, stinking mess. Um, I, you know, Corey, you were just in Singapore talking to the world's leading national security experts. Did you come away with any sense of optimism? Well, David, as you would expect, I did come away with a sense of optimism, as is my birthright as the as the possessor uh, and frequent wearer of the tiara of optimism. I did. Here are a couple of things I was optimistic about. The first was that the American Secretary of Defense was calm and clear about American commitments to preserve the rules-based order in Asia as China rises and was admirably transparent about what he thinks those important rules are. I was optimistic that the Philippine Minister of Defense gave an outstanding uh, lessons learned of the Philippine experience fighting an insurgency in Marawi. Um, and strikes me that they are learning the right kinds of lessons for managing a very demanding problem. 
I was optimistic that the prime ministers of Britain and France not only argued the good case for the rules-based order in Asia, but had ships simultaneously uh, conducting freedom of navigation operations in waters that the government of China claims are territorial rather than international. I was optimistic that despite the genuinely disgraceful behavior of the Trump administration, that America's allies, even while they are deeply disappointed in us, are, you know, Canada, France, other close American allies have the perspective that even close allies sometimes hit rough patches and that we need to sustain our cooperation despite those rough patches. And this isn't the first one we're going to get through. I am optimistic that um, every time China talks at length about their role in the world, they reaffirm America's alliance relationships for us at a time in which we would otherwise be squandering them. I think there's a lot of good news out there. Wow. Well, that's fantastic, Rosa. The, ru the rules... <laughs> The rules, the rules based order is working in the world and everything is fine, Rosa, right? Everything is fine. And, and that's what we want to tell our listeners on the, the hundredth episode of deep state radio. Everything is fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Reported from <laughs> your basement. So let me just ask a couple of specific questions, um, to follow up and let me start with you, Rosa. Uh -huh. Corey, Corey's talking about the rules based order. How's that doing in the U.S.? Um, not so great in the U.S. I mean, it. I, I agree with Corey. There are a few good signs that a, a few other nations uh, are attempting to defend the rules-based order, uh, although unfortunately not all of them. But right here in the United States, the biggest assault on the rules-based order domestically, unfortunately, appears to be coming straight from the White House. Uh, as, we, as we record this podcast, we've just had a series of uh, batshit crazy Trump tweets to the effect that he can pardon himself and the special counsel's unconstitutional, not to mention things coming out of uh, uh, his administration and close close advisors um, to the effect, uh, really, it's, it's like they have the whole Nixon, if the president does it, it can't be illegal, uh, which people have used as sort of a, a byword and a warning for decades now. They, they seem to be regarding that instead as a, a, a script uh, well, they've, they've, been gone a step, they've gone a step further than Nixon, because I don't actually recall Nixon having his lawyers publicly state that he could shoot the former head of the FBI. <laughs> well, you know, it was only a small step from Trump himself claiming he could he could murder somebody right on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't make any difference to his base. And now we have the logical extension of that is Rudy Giuliani saying that he could, in fact, shoot James Comey. Rudy did seem to feel that he would be impeached if he were actually to shoot James Comey. <laughs> so to be fair to Rudy, there was some uh, vague political limit. Rudy did seem to think that that might be a, a politically unpopular action. But, but, but it is not, rather shocking. Not, it is, but it he is, did say it was not prosecutable if he shot yeah, and and on the one hand, you know, they're they're making a distinction which uh, some lawyers do make, um, and that distinction is essentially to say the only remedies against bad presidential behavior is a political remedy, 
and the Constitution provides that the remedy is is impeachment or voting the bum out. You know that there is no legal remedy for bad presidential behavior. I I think that most legal scholars would say that that is not the case. That at least thus far, uh, numerous courts have held and numerous presidents have accepted that at least in certain kinds of circumstances, yes, of course, the president is still bound to follow the law. Uh, indeed, one of the constitutional duties of the U.S. president under our Constitution is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Uh, he is supposed to be the executive. Uh, and that implies that the president doesn't get to just say, well, I'm the president, so if I choose to flout the law, it's not actually illegal. You know, it seems seems like a contradiction in terms. So it, it is. it has been a, a somewhat shocking uh, week or so when it comes to the rule-based order here in the United States. Um, and, the, and the really depressing thing, though, and, and we've talked about this before, when we've talked about are we experiencing constitutional rot or constitutional crisis? When does rot become a crisis? I think the scary thing is that Trump is, on some level, is, is not wrong to say, hey, uh, the only real remedy is a political one, that if the American people lie down and let Trump walk all over them, then he gets to walk all over us, right? That's that's sort of the way it works, that the laws are only as good as the degree right. we actually care about them and choose to take them seriously. Did you want to add something in there, Corey, besides cheering on Rosa? No, I was just cheering on Rosa. Well, I don't I, I don't blame you. And David um, and Ed, if you guys want to cheer too, you're welcome to. Well, let's 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 give David and Ed a chance to do that. David, as we sort of head into this summit between the United States and North Korea, um, it looks like the style of governing and the view of the rule of law of the president of the United States and that of the uh, chairman, the leader in North Korea, seem to be morphing into a single view. Although I, I will have to admit, in Trump's favor. His, his lawyers have not actually said he could assassinate someone with an anti-aircraft gun uh, and not be prosecutable. <laughs> well, that sort of does, you know, take one of the most interesting elements of it off the table, don't you think? I mean, but yeah. he is going to be meeting the master of executions by anti-aircraft gun. Uh, we'll, we'll be getting to that a little bit later on. Um, though the memo that my colleagues at The Times here obtained was truly remarkable because it basically was making the argument not merely that the president was above the law, but that it was sort of reviving the old Nixon argument. If the president does it, it's it's legal. And if it isn't, he could basically pardon himself, which is the, the argument that Rudy Giuliani made and the president himself uh, did. And then the president turned around um, and and declared in a tweet What's more was that the mere appointment of the special counsel, which he misspelled, um, was uh, unconstitutional. Now, he didn't explain what part of the Constitution, the appointment of a special counsel, which obviously there have been many appointed over the years, not just in Watergate, but in many other cases, um, violated the Constitution. I, we can't find a single um, uh, piece of case law that backs up the president's contention, but uh, maybe it's out there. So this is this is having the look of of desperation. Well, did you look at the, Did you look at the case of batshit crazy versus the United States? 
I, I, I missed that one. I'm like, I, I, this is what happened. That, that's regarded as decisive authority by the administration. Yeah. yeah. Rosa, Rosa teaches that case. but um, yeah. right. Of course uh, she does. She, Rosa, lives that right. case. But, uh, We're all living that case. As, as journalists, yeah. as journalists, what we really loved was that uh, we had been told by the president's own lawyers that he had, uh, on the record, that he had nothing to do with that state, the drafting of the statement on Air Force One, um, that uh, said that uh, uh, the meeting with the Russians was all about uh, adoptions and so forth. And now we learn from the statement of lawyers that, in fact, the president had sat down and was deeply involved in drafting it. Uh, and yet they, they don't seem particularly embarrassed about the fact that they uh, uh, completely fabricated this story that he had nothing to do with it. In this one um, uh, session, it was right after he met Putin for the first time. So he sort of had Russia on his, on his mind. Um, and uh, I even had a phone conversation with him just prior to, the, just as the plane was taking off, just prior to the time that he sat down to go draft that. And he never even mentioned the New York Times coverage of this issue, which had, had led him to draft the statement. Um, that's it. Did you actually give him the words for the statement? Was I this... gave him none of the words for the statement. And when my book is out in two weeks, you'll learn about some other remarkable things he said during the course of that. It was an eventful flight. He talked about Vladimir Putin. Really? And and David, what's the name of your book for everybody? And and where you're, could they you're find gonna, it? You're just going to have to they're just going to have to wait and go see it. No, no, no. We've we've said it before on this. It's called the perfect weapon, and that's that, that's our bit of shameless commerce for the day. Do you have? But the they can come to David's crazy? talk at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London if they want to hear about it. And and then retire with us all to whatever pub Corey has chosen, a place where she's now known as a as a regular. I'm sure. There is a pub not too far from there called the Tiara of Optimism, actually. And <laughs> of course for, there is. Now, that is really a fabulous name for a pub, now that I think about it. And you can get Rosa to go in and dig her her uh, tunnels underneath the pub. It could serve multiple purposes. <laughs> yeah, no, right. The upstairs of the pub is the Tiara of Optimism, and then 17 floors below ground is the... <laughs> Crown of Entropy, another pub. There we go. If you yep, could just, if you just have a, if you just have a tube that runs from the bar down to um, the uh, down to Rose's tunnels down there, then Ed and I will just will be there as long as you want us to be there. Well, it'd be interesting to find there'd be some people who would enter, go to the Crown of Entropy, have a few drinks, and end up in the TR of Optimism. There would be others who went into the TR of Optimism had a few drinks, and ended up in the Crown of Entropy. And then uh, there will be the deep state radio nerds who do laps from one to another so that they can have both. <laughs> I, I usually begin my evening at the dog and duck and end it at the horse and hounds, but I'm happy to sort of swap names and continue <laughs> in the same vein. Is, is the batshit crazy part of that round? <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the pub crawl stops. Okay, is, may I please intrude to offer the best description I have heard anytime recently? This from Jonah Goldberg on NPR's Morning Edition. <laughs> Just to make you laugh, my friends, and to re-endorse what Rosa has just said. 
Trump's lawyers act towards him like, quote, he's an escaped monkey from a cocaine study and they can't control him no matter what. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, right. that's America for you. Um, Ed, I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity to um, uh, uh, comment on this, although your reference to horse and hounds is going to have everybody listening think that you were actually the model for the Hugh Grant character in Notting Hill. When he, he said, is, he is. That, 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 that would be profoundly wrong um, on many levels. Um, but, um, and I'm not sure whether to thank you for it, but carry on. Well, yes, no, it's just he represented himself as a reporter from Horse and Hound. Oh, oh, I see. Sorry. Right. Okay. I thought there was like a pub that featured in there was a, Portobello there was Road a or something. Behavioral issue here that you wanted to raise. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of, um, you know, pictures on Sunset Boulevard at the local police station. But um, oh. yeah, so I just run a mile from any Hugh Grant analogy. Okay. What's so wonderful about this is that our fearless leader, David Rothkopf, had the most innocent interpretation of anyone about what that reference meant. That exactly. brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> it is touching. It is it touching. Is. Well, that's me, guys. I'm just a wide-eyed country boy from <laughs> Summit, New Jersey, uh, where, where there's so many wide-eyed country boys. So, Ed, um, you know, I just, you know, I thought you should have the opportunity to offer in your views on the escaped monkey from the cocaine study. Uh, well, when, when was the first deep state? Was it exactly a year ago? Or uh, about 50, 50 it was weeks just about, ago? It was just about exactly a year ago, yeah. Uh, so early June, early June 2017. Uh, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess if you think about what's happened in the last year, it doesn't terribly shock us. Um, you know, it, it could have been if we'd been prognosticating and you can probably go back a year um, as to what would happen in the next year. It's perhaps in some some respects gone at a slower pace. Um, the revelations coming out of the Mueller inquiry and the challenges to the constitutional order that that have come via Twitter and elsewhere from the president. Perhaps in a slower place, at a slower pace than we might have on one or two episodes, um, guessed he would take. Uh, there was a lot more alarm about the imminence of Trump's threat to the republic. Um, and in one sense, that is good um, in that, you know, there are more guardrails than we might have um, um, feared. And another, it's, it's bad in, in that, you know, this has become kind of normal. Uh, even even this week, Trump, uh, the extraordinary memo the New York Times got, Trump's what Trump's lawyers uh, said earlier this year, and what Trump then said this week on Twitter, taking us back way before Nixon, almost like to the Stuart uh, monarchy, the divine right of kings. It's like whatever I do, it's fine. Um, the, even with that, that, there's a certain normalization in the politics of what Trump is. So there is sort of good and bad. Uh, there are, there's good and bad to come out of, um, you know, the, the, the fact that a year later we're, we're maybe in not as dire straits as we thought we might have been, because we are, um, but the public doesn't feel it. I mean, his his approval ratings are low by historic standards at this stage, but not shockingly low. And they're certainly higher than they were a year ago. At this time last year, they were sort of 36, 37, 38 now they're 41, 42. Um, that, 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 in a way, is the most shocking thing of all. 
Let me ask you a question, Ed, just so that people can put this into context. You made a reference to the Stuart monarchy. Can you think of a of an English monarch that is a good uh, precedent for uh, uh, President Trump? You know, a number of people that I've been reading recently compare him to George the Third, and I think this is incredibly unfair to George the Third. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, and, it was and, sane, so, of course. You know, <laughs> right. So, so is there somebody like you know Ethelred the cocaine adult or something? Is, uh, I have an easier time sort of <laughs> thinking of latter-day Roman emperors um, in comparison to Trump, uh, of the Caligulas and the Neros and, you know, making horses senators and that kind of stuff than I do um, with English kings. I wouldn't, wa I wouldn't wish to follow the Charles I analogy because his head was removed from his body. And, um, you know, the, it, it, it sort of breaks down when you start imagining who would the Cromwell be. Maybe that's the Democratic nominee in 2020. Well, uh, there is that the Henry VIII analogy, since he made his wives disappear and Melania's been <laughs> nowhere to be found. That's a good one, which I wish I'd thought of. <laughs> well, you know, you know, we 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 can we could spend a lot of time coming up with analogies. I'm sure that uh, Corey, you may have some. You mentioned the Philippines, and we did see uh, the Philippine president modeling behavior on our own when he molested a woman on stage to the hoots of the crowd um, just just the other day. Um, that's I am so, so glad I was innocent of that cultural reference until just now, David, and I sure wish I could have continued innocent of it. Well, do you, did you read the story? Because he was on stage and he asked a woman if he could kiss her and she said no, and he did anyway. And it Ugh. was... I, Duterte is he's a he's a he's a special guy. Anyway, well, let's pick up on some of the consequences of all of this. Corey, you were there in Singapore, and you did mention that the Allies were not, you know, throwing Americans, uh, you know, under those white Mercedes that drive around in the streets of Singapore as taxi cabs. But um, I, you know, it strikes me that in the past week we have seen more miserable treatment of our allies than at any time since I can remember, ranging from launching trade wars against them to threatening additional trade wars. So, for example, in the case of Germany, you know, uh, adding tariffs to their cars, uh, potentially banning them. That was one story, banning the import of luxury German cars. Uh, and then having our superb ambassador to Germany, the utterly deranged cocaine-addled monkey Rick Grinnell, um, uh, uh, in an interview with Breitbart, suggests that he was going to champion the cause of conservatives in Europe and thus violate the fundamental law of diplomacy of not meddling, uh, at least publicly, in local politics, which was not well received by the Germans. For some reason, we're waging a war against Europe. You're very close to Europe. You're not in it, obviously, but you're close to it. What the fuck is going on? Well, um, the United States government is busy enacting Gibbon's decline and fall of Rome, right? The, the president seems not to understand that America's greatest comparative advantage 
is having built an international order where most people want us to succeed and most countries help us to do so. He is instead busy alienating and aggravating and penalizing countries that send their troops to fight alongside ours, countries that risk their home territory to adopt policies similar to ours, countries that align their currencies to help support ours. It's genuinely shocking how profligate the president is being with America's comparative advantages in the international order. The only two things that keep me donning the tiara of optimism, despite the White House's behavior, is that, first of all, our adversaries are actually also doing a fantastic job shoring up America's alliance relations. Russia's reprehensible behavior is, is holding Europeans and Americans close together, despite the president's abysmal behavior. And the aggressiveness of China's behavior towards its neighbors is likewise making countries still willing to think the U.S. is a better bet than the alternatives. And we should drop to our knees in grateful prayer for those things, because we actually really genuinely don't deserve them right now. Um, uh, David, can we, um, I would agree with everything that um, Corey said in her non-optimistic mode there. But there's been one feature to this trade war that's really struck me, and that is the expanded use of national security excuses to justify what we're doing. So basically, the president had to argue that the Canadians, with um, their trade with the United States, was posing a national security threat, presumably to our industrial base, unless it was, you know, all those logs coming in. And the Canadian uh, foreign minister, Christopher Freeland, who used to be a journalistic colleague of all of ours, went on TV over the weekend and said, excuse me, we sent troops to Afghanistan. We've died for you guys. And we're now suddenly a national security threat to you. Um, and the problem is this is going to get turned against us at some point. How easy would it be for other allies to say, you know, this Google thing uh, or... Um, this Apple thing is a national security threat to us because we can't get inside it to understand who's communicating and plotting. So we're going to ban them. Well, I mean, you it's make just a, you incredibly short-sighted. You make a good point on two levels. One, this charade of, of, of asserting that there's a national security reason for this uh, is, is based on, you know, some dime store lawyering inside the White House that the president, in order to take these actions, needs some authority, and that the authority that seemed to be available was under Section 232 of the trade law, whatever it was, and therefore he had to assert that there was a national security reason that he was was yeah, doing otherwise this. Otherwise, it's a violation of the WTO, right? That right, we except that exception. everybody's going to well, challenge this in the WTO, and yeah. we're going to lose, right? Yes, yes, time. correct. We're going to lose. Right, so that's that's one level, but but the other point, David, I think that you're making, uh, and this may be a, a, a really good reason for people to go out and buy The Perfect Weapon, um, a, a book that I understand will be available in bookstores any minute, um, uh, is, <laughs> is that, is that, um, that Google and Apple and some of these American companies may actually 
um, uh, uh, create a national security threat to these countries. I mean, there may actually be some truth to that. Well, if we can say, if we can argue that Huawei and CTE pose a national security threat, then they could argue that. But what's most interesting about this is that Canada poses a national security threat, but the president wanted to let up the pressure on ZTE, the Chinese phone and switching manufacturer, which is one of the few cases where you could actually argue that there was plausibly argue there is a national security threat. Well, well, but Rosa, this creates an opportunity for world peace, obviously, because ZTE found that the way to get out this um, was simply to offer a few trademarks to uh, Ivanka Trump, and uh, well, then there is no national security threat. And I do want to say, before I allow you to answer this, <laughs> that I was really moved um, by your mother's standing up for Samantha Bee's characterization of Ivanka Trump. Um, and <laughs> Good. Let's keep my mother out of this, David. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure my mother would agree 100% with Samantha Bee's characterization. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, well, sorry, I was left temporarily speechless by your invocation of my mother's tweets. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, it took yeah, 100 episodes oh, to right. render oh. Rosa temporarily <clears throat> speechless. Yeah, it's rare. I'm surprised it's it only took a hundred episodes. <laughs> episode speechlessness. Well, David, I I think we are. I I can imagine sort of the piece of the of the demagogues coming up, right? You know, and this is a sort of unholy alliance between, you know, the corrupt interests of the world who will divide up the pie between them. Uh, and I think that's the direction that Donald Trump is moving us internationally, is that traditional alliances, loyalties based on values, uh, are going to be thrown into the trash. And new alliances will emerge based on rapaciousness and a general agreement to ignore the rules-based liberal order and to just kind of divvy things up in some way that is, that is uh, acceptable to the, the autocrats and demagogues of the world. Um, so yes, there are many opportunities for world peace. It'll be a a Pax Demagogia rather than a Pax Americana, however. Wow, that's not going to catch on, I don't think. But I do get. Well, it, you don't you don't have to like it. It will catch yeah. on whether or not you like it. Sadly. Oh well, I I sort of saw it as the the uh, the fetch of our discussion, and none of you will know what my reference is to, but I. Uh, I, wow, I, I missed it. Yeah, no, it's a reference to the movie Mean Girls and the effort of one of the people in Mean Girls to uh, make the term fetch catch on, which it doesn't. Um, and fetch is in fetching, like, oh, that's really fetch. Um, uh, once again, another sort of B-movie reference from me. Um, but, Ed, you know, it does, it does suggest um, uh, what Rosa's suggesting is, is actually sort of happening. And that is, if you want to win the favor of the Trump administration, all you have to do is do something for Trump. You don't actually have to do something for the United States, do something for his family, do something for him. And and I think, you know, Kim Jong-un gets that, you know, he's like, all I have to do is make this dude feel like he's got a win going on here. And I'm going to get a lot of stuff that I want. And so we've really kind of reduced U.S. foreign policy for the first time 
into being all about one person. And maybe instead of Rosa's Pax uh, Demagogica, or whatever she just came up with, we're entering the period of the Pax uh, Trumpica, where, you know, or Trumpia, where, you know, it's just like, you can have peace with the US, just grease the palm of the president. Yeah, I mean, I sadly share most of that. I mean, it's interesting that an institution as opposed to a government for a country that's managed to do this well is the World Bank with the um, Women's Entrepreneur Fund that was set up for Ivanka Trump. And in return to this great sort of branding and public relations um, and $500 million worth of contributions so far that the, the Women's Entrepreneurs Fund has received from the likes of Japan, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, and that in return for that, the Trump administration now uh, supports a $13 billion capital increase to the World Bank, and Jim Kim's job as president of the World Bank is safe. So, it, it, you know, the fact that the World Bank deals with governments in uh, what we used to call the third world and knows how to deal with them, I think probably gave them some kind of a comparative advantage with uh, or a head start with how to how to seduce the Trump administration, which it has done very well. You know, it, it, it considered what the price was for getting a renewed a capital replenishment. And it, it, it paid that price and, is, and, and, and presumably deems the trade off as having been worth it. But just two things. I mean, we've got obviously all the attention's focused on the Trump um, Kim Jong Un summit next week, uh, but we've got the G7 summit um, in Quebec later uh, this week, and it, you know it's already been dubbed the G6 plus one. And the G7 was something that the United States created. It, it is a grouping um, of the world's largest or formerly largest economies, because China is, isn't a member of it, um, it, it the, the, where America's leadership, for the most part, has prevailed. It's sort of um, a la carte multilateralism in action. It is the sort of best of informal coordination combined with the formal um, uh, structure. And uh, we're, we're now at the situation where G6 plus one is not a joke. It's, it's actually a description of reality that the other six are united um, and America is isolated. And it doesn't really matter, you know, what Steve Mnuchin goes out and tells his G7 finance minister counterparts, the real action, um, the, real, um, the real decisions are being made in the White House. And people know that he's there just to, just to, um, just to try and sort of smooth the waters, but, but they don't believe him. Um, and that and that's an extraordinary situation to be in. You know, we, we we've been taken back to the Stuart dynasty in terms of the presidential uh, view of uh, um, monarchical powers. But we've been taken back to 1929 in terms, as Senator Ben Sass said, in terms of um, in terms of the economics of the world's largest economy. And it is it is quite a shocking picture that we've that, that we're looking at. It is. And, you know, Corey, this is just the opportunity for you to come in and make a defense of the trade policy of Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who, <laughs> in, in one of your faves, who in 1932 responded to the Smoot-Hawley worldview and said, no, you know, maybe it's a good idea for us to trade with our partners because maybe it'll help us get along better with them. And since then, which is, you know, 86 years, 
Um, the United States has had that as the centerpiece of our economic foreign policy with a few blips, but basically almost 90 years of free trade at the center of it, and that at the center of the international economic order. And lo and behold, I mean, you know, after all, you know, after World War II, it wasn't just the the, the UN and the IMF and the World Bank we set up, but we we set up the GATT, you know, the uh, to have a trade body in the middle of this. Lo and behold, we're reversing 90 years of U.S. foreign policy um, with this position of the Trump administration. Yes, and I am absolutely not going to defend the disgraceful and self-defeating decisions of the Trump administration on trade. Apparently, nobody working trade policy in the Trump administration understands basic economics. Um, and and so that's a big inhibition. All I will say, though, is that um, trade is often a really hard sell for Americans. In the 1880s, you oh. saw wild swings in public attitudes. Yay, 1880s. Yay, you know I'm going to Grover Cleveland's administration. Hey, yeah, of course. When, Corey, I just want to make a point that when David was in the Commerce Department at that point, he took care of that problem, okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know, you, promise you, this you, will be fast, my friends. I promise. He was Cleveland's but favorite Grover trade official. Cleveland got in, I think it's 1888. Um, he makes an impassioned speech uh, in what is now known as the State of the Union Address for free trade, arguing American businesses are strong enough to take it. It's not going to dent American wages. We can set the rules in a way advantageous. And he not only fails to get reelected, the Democrats, the party of free trade at that point in time, lose 50% of their seats in the House of Representatives. And you see wild swings back and forth as the public gets a basic education on economics and trade policy. And I feel like that's where we are all over again. What I mean to say by this is that both political parties have been talking absolute nonsense about trade for in the last election and the Democrats for two elections before. I remind you, Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, arguing that NAFTA had to be renegotiated so that the public no longer understands basic trade policy. Um, you know, isn't surprising because po political leaders aren't doing their jobs. But the other thing is, any of you who have seen this tape of Ronald Reagan arguing against trade wars. Um, yes. it, it's really powerful, but it's also a reminder that this is always a hard fought argument in America. Um, and we need to have the argument and we need to win the argument that explains to the American public that the Trump's trade policies are actually genuinely impoverishing to us. And I'll stop now, I promise. No, well, I think that's a very important analogy. And despite David's joke about my being there, I'm pretty sure Wilbur Ross actually was writing uh, for the opposition <laughs> at the time. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, having said that, Rosa, I want you to have the opportunity to um, note that sometimes, uh, even in a democracy which shows respect for the rule of law, 
sometimes you need presidential leadership to get the American people to do things that are uncomfortable for them to do, uh, like playing to you know, the greater good on free trade as opposed to playing to their basest fears on free trade. And Corey's absolutely right. The Democrats were not helpful on this. Hillary Clinton trade policy in the 2016 election was not helpful. Um, and, and both parties have contributed to this situation where you actually have the president of the United States, you know, sort of unable to set foot in our closest allies right now because of what he's doing on trade policy, whether it's Canada or whether it's Germany. I mean, he's, he's pissed off the English and the Mexicans for other reasons. It's, 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 it's really quite stunning, but a different kind of abrogation of presidential leadership. Yes, uh, true. Although the only thing I would add, of course, is that there's another longstanding failure of leadership on the part of presidents from both parties, uh, not to speak of Congress, over, over several decades, which is a, a failure to think adequately about the impact of some of our free trade agreements, both on the standard of living in other countries, but also on uh, standard of living and worker protections and so on here in the United States, I, which is to say that I don't think Americans, Americans, both Trump supporters and non-Trump supporters who are suspicious of some of the trade agreements of recent decades, aren't just suspicious because they don't understand uh, economics, right? I mean, that may be part of it. It may be all of it for some people. But they're also understandably pissed off because many of the agreements, particularly the older ones, I think we've done a better job in more recent agreements, uh, have had, uh, you know, have not been rising tides that lift all boats. They've lifted, you know, catapulted some boats up on, you know, geysers of wealth and left a bunch of other boats to sink. And a lot of Americans have been in those sinking boats. And, you know, so, so. And that's partly a failure of leadership and 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 greed and stupidity on the part of our leaders as well. You know that that it is not impossible to come up with agreements that simultaneously foster greater greater and freer trade, but that also contain much more robust worker protections and so forth. It is also not impossible to use u s. law to do those things. I mean, it's it to just give an example of one of the kinds of mechanisms that we have used pretty effectively in a somewhat different context, take the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, if you start penalizing US companies for uh, accepting bribes and bribing people overseas, they start putting pressure on foreign jurisdictions to pass similar legislation to rein in the behavior of their corporations because they don't want, US companies don't want to be at a competitive disadvantage and you end up getting more of a virtuous cycle uh, in which we, we create a, a legal environment in which U.S. corporations have incentives to not only to do the right thing themselves, but to make darn sure that other countries and other companies from other countries do the right thing. We, we, we do know how to improve trade agreements to ensure greater protections for worker rights, human rights, et cetera. Um, we've gotten better at it, but, but I do think that we have, we have been insufficiently sensitive to that issue across the board. And that's a big part of the reason that Americans are suspicious of free trade agreements. I mean, you know, I'm not arguing, needless to say, the Trump tariffs are the sort of dumbest form of protectionism 
that are pretty much guaranteed to backfire and hurt us. Uh, but but I think we have to accept some collective blame, uh, not just blame Trump for the fact that so many Americans don't understand these and think they're generally a bad idea. Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's a, there's a fair point there. Uh, obviously, we don't have to swing from one extreme to the other. I think the only weakness in your argument is that you offer up this really 2016 idea that foreign corrupt practices bother us anymore, when in fact, the, so champion, true. <laughs> the, so cha true. the champion of them is now the president of the United States. That was just a dose of nostalgia. Right. Pretty soon, Rudy Giuliani will say, you know, you can't commit a foreign corrupt practice if you're the president. So look, we've got to sort of wrap this up. And I have a couple of things that I'd like to talk about with regard to how we're going to mark this 100th anniversary over the course of the next weeks and months, but also immediately. But I, but I, before I get to that, I would like to sort of go around with the group um, and sort of look 100 episodes out into the future, uh, which is to say about a year. And and you know, stick your neck out and say, what is the thing that we talk about the most that's going to change the most in the next 100 episodes? What do you think the big headline when we look back at our 200th episode is going to be from the year before, uh, whether it's something that changes in the United States or something that changes around the world? David? Well, I guess my start on this would be Iran, which we entered, you know, a, a year ago, we would have thought was a problem that was largely going to be contained for a number of years. We knew it was lurking out there, but probably would next burst into the headlines when there was a change of power. It sure seems if you take everything the administration has said and done in the past couple of months, like we're headed toward a confrontation there. Oddly enough, the country that has a lot of nuclear weapons, and I guess we'll take it up in the next episode, North Korea, it seems the president is now so determined to be successful in getting a peace treaty and so forth that if you took at face value what he's been saying recently, um, he may not press as hard on the nuclear weapons as we would have thought when a year ago we were talking about fire and fury. So I think those two will be a big change. I think Donald Trump will still be president. Uh, I suspect that this discussion of impeachment probably will not go all that far, but maybe I will um, uh, be found to be completely wrong after the midterms on that. Um, okay, uh, Ed. So I would, I mean, in terms of areas of concern where bombs could go off, as it were, uh, would look to Europe. I mean, the, the Italian government, um, whether it lasts um, for, for a long time or whether there's a, uh, it falls apart and there's another election, which results in a higher populist vote share, which is what the polls indicate would happen if an election were called now, poses a mortal threat to the euro. Um, the German government, Merkel, is not responding to Macron's overtures to make the Eurozone a sane zone that doesn't penalise the club med countries, in which German sadomonetarism, as some like to call it, isn't the rule. Um, so the Franco-German motor is not sparking, and we've got, uh, you know, more than, more than a hammer in the works there, a spanner, rather, in the works in terms of the Italian threat to the Euro. If you think that the Greek debt crisis was big. Think what an economy 10 times the size of Greece with 10 times its debt um, would do to the world's largest currency zone and largest trading zone. And that, that could derail 
all kinds of things, including, you know, the uh, the um, brave and not so brave efforts of uh, the moderates in European democracy to hold on to power. Uh, Corey. Well, I'm still sitting here reveling in Ed's description of throwing a hammer in the works. <laughs> Spada, sorry. I got, Banner. I got, no, I got my tools so in, in a twist. The Freudian slip, Ed. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like it's a way better <laughs> analogy. Than I like that. that. Thank you, Corey. I'll, I'll, keep, I, I'll keep hammer from now I on. I thought it was a wrench. <laughs> yeah. I think the biggest thing that will change a year from now is how much Democrats taking control of the House will change our conversation from um, the, the rightful and continued focus on the disgraceful behavior of congressional Republicans to protect the rule of law, to defend law enforcement, at the federal level to reign in the present president by laws, norms, and the Constitution. I, I think our focus will shift because while I sadly um, uh, am drinking at the crowny thorn of entropy bar in the basement where Republicans in Congress behavior is concerned, I think Democrats are likely to retake control of the House and we were spending a lot of time talking about, will Democrats legislate an agenda that differs from the president's and thereby focuses on a different kind of American future? Or will they be unable to restrain themselves from playing into the president's game and spending all of their time and effort on dealing with the president rather than going around him to... Uh, to shape the post-Trump era of American politics. Uh, interesting, Rosa. Yeah, I'm not good at predictions, and and that's partly because it seems to me that the last 18 months has consisted of a a steady stream of things that no one would have predicted because it was all seemed too impossible. There, you know, there's no way Trump will do this. There's no way Trump will do that. Of course, that can't happen. Uh, and then all sorts of things that couldn't happen did happen, uh, which makes me inclined to think that any predictions any of us make, uh, you know, we might as well just, you know, put down random predictions and then pull some out of a hat. They'll be as accurate. Um, so, so I, yeah, I think that we will continue to get a whole series of surprising things that we did not predict. Um, my biggest fear um, is that, like the like the non-existent frog um, being slowly boiled, um, that we will continue to wring our hands as the rot spreads and that there will not be a single moment. My, my prediction would be that things continue to get worse. In, things will continue to get worse. The specific ways and nature of the worseness is not predictable, but it is probably a safe bet they will continue to get worse on the rule of law front, both domestically and internationally, um, and that it will be a, there will be no single event of such shockingness, such shocking magnitude to, as to cause a sort of wholesale uh, resistance of any sort, legal, political, or otherwise, 
that instead that each each event will seem sufficiently like the most recent ones as we become gradually inured to the uh, craziness and appalling behavior of this administration, that things will get worse and we won't do anything about it. Wow, that is depressing. However, you know, one of the reasons that I love you guys is that you have left the door open for me to offer my uh, brief take on this, and that is that a hundred episodes from now, um, I'm going to stick my neck out and say Donald Trump will not be the president of the United States. Um, and I think that's because it would be foolhardy to expect that the Trump saga is actually going to become less dramatic, uh, more tolerable, um, or um, uh, somehow we, we're going to find a, a way to sustain it. Uh, I do think the House will change. I do think further investigations will make it harder for him to stay. And I continue to think that Trump will um, resign rather than face the humiliation of uh, 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 impeachment and conviction. Um, and I realize this is a, a long shot, but but I'm I'm there and. You know, the question really is going to be, could Mike Pence succeed him? Where is where is the Mueller investigation going to leave us on Mike Pence? Or do we face the prospect a year from now of President of the United States, Kevin McCarthy, um, uh, who could well, well, I guess he won't be the Speaker of the House. I guess Nancy Pelosi could be the next President of the United States. So that... Um, well, that's a kind of an interesting prospect to end up to have Trump usher in the first woman president. Um, uh, well, you are going on a, on a limb. Well, I, I'm just carrying it to its illogical. <laughs> it's logical. <laughs> but, but but having said that, I do Free think. Free and slip, David. <laughs> well, maybe maybe so, but you know, we'll see. We'll see where we end up. Anyway, you know, hundred years, a hundred episodes into this thing, uh, in Trump time, it seems like a hundred years. Uh, it's it's been a wonderful experience, mostly because of you folks and the others who have joined us on the air. Over the course of the summer, what we're going to do is in each episode, we're going to bring in some of the other people who've added so much to this um, uh, this discussion uh, and really kind of celebrate them and uh, throughout the, the, the summer. Um, and uh, but I do want to say that, you know, the thing that and I, I suspect that all the, the, the you guys agree with that the thing that has made Deep State Radio such a fantastic experience is the Deep State Radio nerds. It's the group of folks that are out there. Here, who are here. So engaged to come, some come up to us at events who manage to mugs. ask for mugs and maintain their sense of humor. We're not gonna let you down. We have created a new set of mugs in honor of this occasion uh, and a new set of t-shirts and sweatshirts. Um, that bear the official logo of the Ministry of Snark, uh, and it's and it's and the 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 Latin motto for the Ministry of Snark, which is Veni Vidi Nerdy, um, and uh, it's a it's a really kind of next generation uh, 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 type of swag, and all it's going to take <laughs> is for the first hundred uh, of you out there to, you know, write the best testimonials for Deep State Radio that you can tweet to the world. 
um, and we you have to do it on Twitter so that people can see it. Um, uh, you know, all you do is do it, post it, put hashtag Deep State Radio in there. Uh, and if you're in the top 100, and you're bound to be, um, we'll send you a mug or a T-shirt or sweatshirt um, from David. Are are employees, contributors, and periodic commentators on Deep State Radio uh, not eligible for this incredible offer? No, they're all eligible. There are no <laughs> rules like that. <laughs> Why not spread the corruption of the swamp? Exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is the deep state, Dave. In, in fact, no... David, you can be the first hundred tweeters. Yeah. In fact, we'll, we'll just send them directly to your home. Um, but, but, but so we're going to do that. And in the next uh, uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to announce the first set of uh, Deep State live um, uh, performances where we'll get the group together in the Tiara of Optimism pub. For or an in, interpretive uh, dance. For interpretive dance. Corey has prepared this for us all. Um, and uh, and Ed is also very well known. I, I think we should have Rose's mother live tweet the event. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's an excellent uh. idea. Uh, but anyway, in the fall, uh, we're starting in September. We will we will start doing some of these live events uh, that other podcasts have made popular. But it's only because people really would like to see us. So we'll be out there, um, and we're going to come up with some new ways that you can engage with us on a regular basis as kind of members of the deep state. Uh, and we'll be uh, you know raffling off memberships in the deep state as well. So stay tuned because. This summer is going to be super eventful for Deep State Radio, for the members of the Deep State, for Deep State Radio nerds, uh, and uh, and probably for the world, which will keep you listening for other reasons as well. Uh, in any event, uh, it's been a great first hundred episodes, and I want to thank uh, you guys uh, for having made that possible, Rosa, Corey, Ed, and David. Thank you, David, Thank you. for being our fearless leader and ringleader. Um, yeah. Ring ringleader. I have to go now. In, in it's such a it's such a glorious job. I have to go and pack boxes full of t-shirts to ship. To <laughs> now, well, you know, I think now I understand why you're in Shanghai. You clearly went because you have sourced all of the t-shirts there. Now, I've not only sourced them, but I'm sitting here silk screening them as we speak. David, are what? you using Ivanka Trump trademark textiles? Well, that would be, I could be, but they've all, they're all known as Adrian Vittadini trademark textiles now. Uh, and uh, are there going to be tariffs on these shirts and mugs? Um, that's an interesting question. There probably will be, given the position that we've taken. But uh, since we're giving them away free, <laughs> even a 50% tariff should not be an obstacle to people. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm just doing the math. That's confusing. Yeah, I'm, I'm really confused. Here. Yeah, you just you just, just you're just not good at economics, are you, Ed? <laughs> no, I'm I'm, I'm stuck. It's, it's right, Ed Luce, the economics correspondent for Horse and Hound magazine. Uh, uh, exactly. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thanks for the first hundred, and look forward to the next hundred. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am coming to you from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, which is as mysterious and amazing as it seems. 
Uh, I am joined here, by the way, in the background by Ian Enright, our uh, engineer and producer who um, uh, is part man and part some kind of beast, which we don't really know. We can hardly identify, but he's never been seen (laughs) outside of the third sub basement. So. Um, uh, 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 you know, if you spot him, uh, uh, send photos, post them on Instagram, on our Instagram account. Um, and in London, England, we have Corey Shockey of double I double S and in Washington, we have Mika Oyang of the third way. And in, uh, sunny Los Angeles or outside of sunny Los Angeles, we have Emily Brandwin, who is the host of our upcoming brand new series, Washington for Beautiful people, the latest addition to the Deep State Radio roster. Um, let me start, um, you know, with the kind of check that foreign policy professionals make all the time. Um, Corey, are we on the verge of a war with Russia? So Russia has been at war against Ukraine for the last several years, not only seizing Crimea, but fostering violent unrest in the Donbass and trying to punish Ukraine for wanting to be closer to the European Union and to NATO and trying to ensure that Ukraine remains a failed state in order that its prosperity not become a, um, a comparison for, for the path Putin has put Russia on. But the crisis in the Sea of Azov that started yesterday, you know, f- we're four years at war and the Russians are just keep chipping away. Um, it, it's what the strategic survey that the International Institute for Strategic Studies just published calls tolerance warfare, right? They, it's, it's what they used to call during the Eisenhower administration salami tactics. You take a thin slice and see if anybody reacts. It's a small enough move that you could back away from it if you had to, or the humiliation of backing down wouldn't be too much. But what Russia did was it looks like they're trying to enforce territorial claims at sea, extending from Crimea um, against Ukraine. And yesterday they killed six, uh, six Ukrainian sea- seamen and took a couple of ships of Ukrainian origin and then accused the Ukrainians of making the whole thing up, um, staging it as a way to precipitate martial law in Ukraine. This So Russia is clearly to blame for this. But the second thing to say is that the dysfunctional nature of the Poroshenko government is making it hard for folks to come to their defense. Because, in fact, Poroshenko does want parliament to implement martial law. And the corruption of the Poroshenko government has stalled momentum um, and support from Western nations. To his great credit, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, today made a statement that Ukraine has the full support of NATO allies for their territorial integrity and sovereignty. But at the UN Security Council this afternoon, the Russians were uh, anything but repentant. And this has the real potential to escalate quickly. 
Um, yeah, Mika, it, the United States would seem to be an important player in this kind of international incident. And, uh, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that the Obama administration was not as tough on the Russians, perhaps, as they could have or should have been on several occasions. Um, uh, but to the extent to which that was the case, the Trump administration has clearly compounded that by giving the Russians a free pass on all sorts of things. Uh, and I'm wondering how you think this set of incidents plays out in Washington. So I think, unfortunately, both left and right have incentives to turn a blind eye to what's happening in Ukraine, when actually we should be paying very close attention to what's happening there, because the Russians have been using it as their proving ground and their testing ground for all kinds of tactics. They're boundary testing, not just on conventional warfare, but also in the cyberspace, messing with their utilities, causing uh, putting out disinformation. The things that they are trying there, they will try in other places. Um, so we should be watching it very carefully as a case study. But I think, David, to your point about the Obama administration, you know, America's fear of an escalatory crisis uh, with a nuclear-armed power is so great that in many ways we are self-deterred for from doing the kinds of things that we might otherwise in the face of this kind of incursion in sovereignty. I mean, we are a very long way from the first Bush administration that said that the Iraqi annexation of Kuwait will not stand and marshal the coalition to enforce that territorial sovereignty. Russia, and we're a long way also from the moment where Senator McCain declared we are all Georgians after the Russian incursion into South Ossetia. Unfortunately, what we have seen with the annexation of Crimea and the continuing conflict in eastern Ukraine has been met largely with a collective shrug in U.S. foreign policy circles. I think there are some experts who are obviously very concerned about this, but you do not see the people with decision-making authority doing the things that are necessary to say we actually care about countries maintaining their sovereignty and we will not change borders by force. Well, you know, quite quite beyond that, yesterday, Emily, one of the things that struck me was as the Russians were seizing these ships and uh, provoking this confrontation um, uh, brazenly, um, uh, as, as, as Corey indicated, the president of the United States was not tweeting about it. Instead, he was attacking our NATO allies for not paying enough money uh, for their own defense, further compounding the, the 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 realization that he doesn't actually understand how any of that works. Um, but it struck me, you know, that at that particular moment, the Russians were conducting military attack on the eastern side of NATO, and the president of the United States was coming at it from the west, uh, which is kind of shocking. Well, he does. I think he does that all the time. He does like the shiny objects. If something's happening with Russia, he's not going to condemn it, so he'll. He'll attack somebody else and try to try to you know distract everyone with another shiny object. I'll just attack somebody else, so maybe I can get the collective focus somewhere else. Um, the only, I think the only person who's really come out in the administration is Nikki Haley, and she'll be gone soon anyway. But I, it's a little bit shocking. But I was reading his tweet storm, and I was like, oh, okay, th this makes sense. This is everything that's going on in the world. Let's attack somebody else. Completely. And it just it's his M.O. It's what he does. Well, also, you know, Corey Putin has been pretty good at 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 
you know, doing his salami slicing while people are looking in a slightly different direction. Um, and, you know, you know, I, to, to some extent, he may think that the, the, the world is preoccupied elsewhere. For example, you have pretty big Brexit story unfolding in Europe right now. Um, and it seems kind of, you know, reasonable to assume that a lot of people in Europe are going to be more caught up in that than they are, you know, um, uh, the, the sea of Azov, right? So, um, I, you know, that's, you know that's strategic on his on 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 his part. Is that the correct assumption to make about the Europeans? Well, I mean, Prime Minister May gets a parliamentary uh, vote on the Brexit deal on December 11th, and the drama here was over the making of the deal, whether her government would fall, whether a push against her. She's widely perceived to lose the parliamentary vote. And so everybody here is consumed with thinking about what happens when the government fails to get an approval of the Brexit vote. What that? What so, happens? What um, happens? You're there. <laughs> it's not clear yet. It's not clear whether uh, the after they lose the first vote, they will Prime Minister May will probably go back to Brussels and hope for some adjustments. It's not clear why your why EU folks would offer those because they feel like they've been giving Britain a good deal and waiting for Britain to stop demanding more. And so I think the only way she gets the compromises that might change the vote's outcome in Parliament is if she can uh, you know, do the hard arithmetic of explaining to uh, Barnier and others in Brussels how she's going to get the votes uh, that turn this around. Because because if Europe makes some compromises and it gets voted down a second time, uh, then they're right back where they started. Um, so she's either going to have to get compromises from Europe that make it possible or... Uh, or offer what have been the three, you know, offer this deal remaining in the EU or bouncing out without an agreement to Parliament or to the public. So, yeah, it's going to be a consuming mess for some time now still. And that may, that may be what drove the timing, but it doesn't feel like quite enough. I, I can't figure out what drove the timing on this. It feels... Um, it may have just been a target of opportunity. Um, well, uh, that, that, you know, that's always always a possibility when governments are concerned. If it's a choice between a big conspiracy or a coincidence, it's often the coincidence. Mika, I want to. Uh, you're sitting down, right? I don't want to overburden you. Yeah, okay. Um, but I'm going to ask you a really, really hard policy question. You're a policy professional. Um, has Trump done anything as stupid in foreign policy as Brexit? Or is Brexit really the stupidest thing that a country has done to itself in recent memory? Ooh, that is a tough question. <laughs> because I actually feel like there are some things that Trump has done, um, well, not as dramatic as Brexit, may have similar 
particularly bad long-term consequences for the United States. I think, you know, the NAFTA pullout had the potential for that. The INF treaty withdrawal may have the potential for that. But I think that the big one um, that has that potential is the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear agreement. And not just because of what it means for Iran, but because of the international reaction to it. You know, the Trump administration said, we're going to pull out of this agreement that where Iran agreed to um, freeze their and roll back their nuclear weapons program in exchange for some economic relief, um, which was agreed to globally, you know, Russia, China, our European allies. It was quite the coalition that came together to put these conditions on Iran. Um, and then when the Trump administration pulled out from this agreement, what you see in this conversation about whether or not we're going to impose secondary sanctions on our allies in Europe for continuing to try and work with Iran economically to hold this deal together is that you see the creation of an alternate economic system that would get around the U.S. financial system as a way of trying to avoid the secondary sanctions, which in the long run could really undermine the power of the U.S. financial system as a diplomatic and geopolitical tool if the rest of the world figures out they just don't need us leaving us even more isolated than it we feel right now. I think that was an excellent answer, um, which explains completely why you're one of the leading thinkers in the foreign policy establishment here in Washington. But let's just see if there's some other answers possible, too. Um, you know, Emily, as stupid Trump policies go, how would you rank um, – saying that after his administration comes out with a report that climate change could reduce the U.S. economy uh, GDP by 10 percent and produce the loss of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of jobs. And the president's response is, well, I just don't believe it. Does that rank up there as, you know, in terms of long term consequences, do you think? I mean, you're sitting there in California surrounded by the smoldering embers of your state. So I was wondering well, if was, that figured. I will just say I'm lucky to even be on this podcast. I had a lot of raking to do this morning. And yeah. so I finished that up so I could join. Um, I fear that. Thank it, you. It Thank Trump's, you for your service. You know what? I keep continuing to serve. Like I said, <laughs> you know, I'm a giver. What I fear is that Trump may hear this and take this, take your question as a challenge to do something even more stupid. Yeah. Um, the climate change, it's, first of all, my father-in-law is a climate scientist, so what I love to do now is just send him quotes to see, like, how irate he's going to be, <laughs> it's, it's, which is probably not the best thing to do for in-law relationships, but I do it often. It's so, it's not, what's so funny to me is everyone's like, oh, Trump doesn't understand. He absolutely understands it, in my opinion. He gets it. He's just, he just says it because he thinks he can convince somebody else about it and it doesn't suit him financially. It's utter stupidity. But no, I think he's going to top himself. My money would be on that. I mean, think- it ranks there, but I think there's so many other stupid, stupid, like profoundly stupid, palpably stupid things he'll do within the next year. You know, Corey, you know, Emily raised an interesting idea. I think we should do one whole deep state radio just directed to the president, you know, assuming that he's listening, you know, that we could just, you know, you could give him your direct advice. You know, <laughs> I, I, 
think that would be pointless. Like I noticed people answering the president on Twitter, replying to the president's tweets. And and I think it's pointless because he's on broadcast. He's not on receive. Yeah, well, that's that's true. But the reason I do it is because otherwise I'll have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> you know, this is partially therapeutic. You know, it's not for him. It's for me. Um, I'm not the only one, but I'm just saying, you know, there is a reason. There is right. a reason to do it. You know, it's like he's shouting at us. Don't you want to shout back sometimes? Uh, you know, it's, it's it's I mean, Corey, the president of the United States has ordered the United States military to use lethal force against hundreds of women and children on our border. He's launching tear gas. The first shot I saw of the tear gas landing among these people was a mother and two girls, one of whom was barefoot. And you're thinking, what is the what it what is the threat posed by this barefoot girl to the United States of America? Uh, yes, I agree with that. I think there is no threat posed by this barefoot girl. Do, do, thanks. Thanks for agreeing with that. Um, David, on this on this incident, this particular right, so-called cabinet order that was issued so as everyone was leaving town for Thanksgiving is a really, really dangerous precedent. And we haven't seen the language of the order yet, but the process by which this order was put out says really bad things about the future of rule of law in this country. Right? We've seen in press reports that even though he disagreed with this order, that uh, Chief of Staff John Kelly signed it out, but it was signed out against the advice of the White House counsel, Emmett Flood, who warned them that this could be unconstitutional. And that the White House counsel was the one dispensing the legal advice. You know, in the Bush administration, we saw when that was the case, it usually was political because they were avoiding getting the, the strongest legal advice that they could from the affected agencies. In this case, the DOD general counsel or the office of legal counsel at the Department of Justice. And I think that they were afraid of that answer. What that says is that they're not interested in staying in bounds of the law. One of the things that is the most fundamental principles in the United States, which is that we do not use our military to operate on American soil as a police force. It is one of the things that has distinguished us for centuries from other countries in how we stand against authoritarianism. And the Trump administration would just, with a wave of a pen and against the advice of counsel, put this order out there is actually terrifying to me. Corey, this is your lane in some respects, because you've spent a lot of time with uh, the the relationship between the civilian and the military side of the government. What's your view of what Mika just said? My view is that uh, the accepted uh, legal wisdom is that the White House chief of staff is not in the chain of command for military orders. And so it will have no bearing on anything that the White House chief of staff signed uh a, whatever this concoction was, that only the president of the United States has that authority, and it goes from the president to to the secretary of defense, and thence into the American military. So this is a political stunt um, that has no legal basis, and I uh, I worry that it's one more way that the president is 
dominating the news cycle and getting us all lathered up and dispersing what should be concentrated outrage about uh, why don't we have a border policy that is both humane and secure? Because we as a country ought to be capable of doing both of those things simultaneously. And at the moment, we aren't. Not to mention a regional policy that might serve our border policy. I mean, we don't I even have the argument. David. We, we, we exactly don't even have an right. ambassador to El Salvador. Right. We don't. We, we, you know, we in fact, Trump's decision was to cut back on the aid we were providing to these countries uh, that in part had the purpose of trying to create conditions which would lead people to stay at home rather than coming to our country. So we on a foreign policy front, on a border policy front, on a domestic policy front, we seem to be losing on all of this. But I imagine, Emily, that in California, where the border crossing was actually shut down, where many people, thousands, tens of thousands of people use that border crossing every day, uh, this is not an abstract policy discussion, but this is really close to close to home. It is. I was just, the pictures are so unsettling and it doesn't, I know we're talking about stupid decisions and like on Trump's wheel is stupid. I don't even know if this goes on because it's just, it's just so incredibly sad. And to your point, Corey, I think that's all, especially here in California, it's obviously it's a pressing issue, but it's what we want is a humane issue. It's, this is such a soulless, just so sad and soulless response to a problem and escalating a problem that doesn't need to be escalated to this extent. I'm, I, I'm just so disheartened over these images and what, what's going on. I was going to ask Corey, what's, what do, what's the next response? How does this get stopped? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I think I, uh, I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't think the administration is going to make sensible choices. No. Uh, what I notice, though, is that in part, you know, when we had a similar crisis five or six years ago and you had unaccompanied children coming up through Central America to be admitted to the United States um, because our policy would admit unaccompanied children, and you think about what a family must be suffering to make that choice. Um, part, part of the way we turned that, that crisis around was through cooperation with the countries of Central America and in particular with Mexico. And we just don't have the kind of relationship with any of those countries now where they are going to help us solve this problem. So you don't have strategic depth to work with. You don't have space you don't have cooperation. So it's all going to be pressed right up against the border. Um, and that's where we work least well. Yeah, and one of the things that makes me really sad about this is remembering back to John Kelly's testimony when he was nominated to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. And he correctly identified that these are people who are fleeing from something. And one of the ways to solve this crisis was to actually try and stay stabilize the countries from which they were fleeing and improve rule of law in those countries and help those countries get a handle on their own violence. And what's very clear in this administration is that he has repeatedly 
lost that policy fight inside the administration, that they have gone with a strategy of let the rest of the world burn. And then when they, right, when they show up at our doorstep, be as inhospitable as possible, um, not recognizing that there are reasons why people want to come to America. And frankly, they want to come to America for all the reasons that we love America, which is the opportunity here, the the political freedom that we enjoy, our ability to make a good life and to live in peace with our families. And of course, we are selling that to the rest of the world. And we should not be surprised when people who live in much worse circumstances try and seek the life that we have. You know, it's, I don't know, we only have about 10 minutes left here. And I, I you know, I don't want to get too far off track, but one of the things that it strikes me, uh, just as I'm thinking back on some of the things we've been talking about, is the degree to which one of the most damaging things the president of the United States has said in a variety of different kinds of settings is, I don't believe it. He started with the Russian hacking of the United States political system. And the intelligence community came and said, no, this is the Russians. And then everybody in the intelligence community said that. It was a unanimous conclusion. And other countries said it was the Russians. And the president said, I don't believe it. Um, And when Khashoggi um, was murdered, um, uh, and we do not know what the foreknowledge of that murder may have been within the Trump administration, so maybe even worse than I say, but then the intelligence community came and they said, uh, this is what has happened. And the president says, I don't believe it. And then the climate report is issued uh, saying that this is really a threat. I mean, there's no war on the horizon that can pose the threat of failing to address this climate threat. And the president's response again is these you know, four words, I don't believe it. And, you know, Emily, it just strikes me that we've come to a very strange place where you can place any amount of facts in front of our idiot king, and he can just simply dismiss them um, with a wave of his hand, and he just says, I don't believe it, and he will go on, and somehow believes that he, his own point of view, his own uh, intelligence— is greater than that of the sum total resources of the United States government, our allies, and the scientific community, just to pick a couple. And it just, do you think I, he really believes that, though? Or do you think he just says that for his greater purpose? I don't know. I, I feel I, like I, his lies are so brazen at this point when he says, I don't believe it. For him to say, I don't believe... Every single intelligence agency has come together unanimously when they agree on literally nothing. Having worked at the agency, literally, we don't agree with anybody. We're like bad brothers and sisters who fight constantly. The fact that we all came together and said, this is truth. This is fact. We have proof. And for him to say, I don't believe it, he literally, I don't, I don't understand. Well, I was going to say I understand how his brain could process it. I don't truly know if he has that. But do you believe that he really doesn't believe it? I think he doesn't believe it. I actually think that he lives in a world of his own making 
and has his entire life, from the size of his wealth to his attractiveness to the opposite sex to well, his yeah, that's crazy to his influence right around the world like you know all the stuff that he did back in the 80s calling in fake stories to reporters i mean he just thinks that he can create this fictional world and the rest of the world will go along with it and so i think that when he says he doesn't believe it it's true but i think it says something really fundamental about the premise on which our government was found is founded which is that the government acts with rational basis. It has reasons. Those reasons are grounded in fact and an assessment of what's actually happening in the world. And when the commander in chief, when the president of the United States is making decisions that have no basis in fact, that have no basis in reality, what does it mean to the way that our government is structured and rational, right? Rational basis deference, the ways in which courts assess government um, decisions, the ways in which our allies react to us, the entire thing is premised on the idea that the president of the United States and the U.S. government act in rational ways. Well, I, I would, he I would, doesn't do that. Well, I would go He's a step so further. I would go a step further, Corey. That there is, you know, we, we, we can talk about it. Well, the president's smarter, he's not smarter, he's lying or he's stupid or whatever. You know, you can have these kind of conversations. And that's, you know, what I think a lot of the Thanksgiving table conversations were. Um, and you can have a, a more elevated conversation along the lines of what Mika is talking about. But, you know, if the president of the United States arrogates onto himself the ability to say this is true, this is not true, um, and to literally discount all the advice, then that is a step towards, um, you know, um, uh, autocracy. It's a step towards, you know, rule by one individual because the entire system of particularly the executive branch is designed to advise, provide good advice uh, and, and much of what the Congress does to the president. And if he's able to dismiss it out of hand and do so without any basis of counterargument besides simply saying this is my belief where do we, where does that leave us I don't think president trump is the first american president to have lied to the american public i do recall dwight eisenhower denying the u2 overflights um, i i i really worry that we talk about president trump he is in some ways unique but he's also in some ways, not that much of an outlier. And on the president's willful and repeated denial of the truth all over the place, I agree it's a pathology. But I also think there are a lot of very strong built-in countervailing forces. The vibrancy of the American press, the our conversations here, so the deep state radio nerds are properly informed <laughs> of the facts. Yeah, this is this is like a shortwave radio station reaching out, you know, <laughs> across the country, connecting to people and saying, no, this is the real truth. Believe you know, there's it. a passage in Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part One, where Glendower claims he can call spirits up from the vasty depth. And instead of being impressed, Hotspur's response is, well, so can I or so can any man. The question is, will they come when you do call? So I think the question isn't 
does the president lie and deny the truth? Of course he does. The question is, does that succeed in truth not being believed? And that's on us. That's on all of us. Well, let me challenge that. Let me, I, first of all, I, I love, you know, as the, the, as the former, well, actually, I'm not, with Emily here, I'm one of two former actors in the crowd. Um, uh, I appreciate the, the, the reference. But it's not a question of, of, of it's not binary. His disbelief or his discounting it can have some effect within the White House, within his party, uh, in terms of policy initiatives, in terms of, you know, what he does or does not do. Um, and we've seen it. You know, he says he doesn't believe in climate and he promotes coal, you know, which is, you know, ludicrous, you know, policy. It doesn't even really create any jobs. Um, and we've seen it with regard to Russia that, you know, he can get okay, a lot of it. He's not the only person who advocates coal is all I'm saying. And that the that barrage of data and affirmation and like we we're not without tools to counter this foolishness. And I just want to make sure that we don't talk ourselves into a position where everything relies on the president's behavior, because we have such a vast array of tools in our arsenal. I mean, I, I think, that, yes, I think that we could choose to disbelieve the president. But, Corey, I also think that there's something really scary about the ways in which we have to do that and what that means for the presidency and, and democratic governance generally, like I tend to believe that the president is operating in this alternate reality. And it, it's not like Eisenhower or Nixon where they're lying and they know what the truth is and they're choosing to tell another story. I think he just believes things that are not true. And so from that perspective, I think he's different. But, you know, I do think that there's something really scary about what it means for our government when the people inside the government and the bureaucracy have to look at what the president says, parse what he means and doesn't mean, and then make determinations other than that. Because what happens later on when we have a different president and people inside the government start saying, well, I can pick and choose what of the president says I can follow or not follow. And like, I hope that Trump is just an aberration and I know we can go back to a world where a president is a rational actor. And when they are speaking to the government, there's a normal process. And we know their decisions are made based on a consideration of the facts. But I'm concerned that we are look, losing a sense of rational decision-making in government generally. And I think that that has some really scary consequences for how we go forward. And I th by the way, I think those are both very thoughtful um, analyses. And I think Corey's wearing two tiaras at the moment, both the tiara of optimism and the tiara of thoughtful, cool rationality. Um, and they look good together, both of them, Corey. But, um, the, you know, as we as we as we look at this, you know, Emily, one of the things that strikes me is that we who are from the sort of policy community tend to want to analyze things in a thoughtful policy way. And. And yet you bring up a good point. You know, it may not be that. There may also be, you know, just deep inherent flaws. The president of the United States may just be a big dope. And, you know, I, I think about it because think about some of the responses just in the past 
you know, a day or two uh, in the in the just the day we're recording this, which we record these on Mondays uh, at, the, at the moment. And and um, so somebody asked the president about the confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. And the president's response was, hopefully it will get straightened out. And somebody asked the president about climate change. And he says, I don't believe it. And and then, you know, somebody asked the president about General Motors laying off 15,000 jobs. And he says, well, I called them up and I told them that they should um, stop building cars in China and they should build cars in the U.S. And then when he was challenged on this by saying the cars didn't sell, the president's response to that was, well, they should they should stop selling cars that don't sell and they should start selling cars that sell. Now, you know. <laughs> At a certain point, don't we just have to sort of have a human reaction and go, what a maroon, as Bugs Bunny would say. I, 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 mean, I, I have to counter Corey's Henry the Fourth Part One with Bugs Bunny. And you're just like, what a, what a maroon. I mean, you make a very good case that perhaps he's a really crap president when you lay it out like that. Um, yes, I believe. Um it's yeah. I, I mean, I Corey, I appreciated your optimism how you explained it because the idea that maybe he he believes the falsehoods and his own notions is somehow I don't know more comforting than him choosing to lie and deceive in in that way maybe. But both <laughs> options are equally as <laughs> horrifying. I see you the point. But by the way, Corey, I should add that among the things that he said was, you know, he, you know, uh, essentially pushing for Britain to get out of the EU at any cost. And our our regular partner here, Ed Luce, tweeted out, Trump is openly gunning for a no-deal Brexit and for a populist like Boris Johnson or Rees-Mogg to finish off Theresa May. This is full Bannonism, not the behavior of an ally. It's actually the behavior of Vladimir Putin, right? I mean, it is like... He is so far out there on these things. But again, let us recall that Barack Obama also intervened in Britain's internal conversation, advocating um, a remain vote. So I don't I'm not I'm not all I am saying is that other American presidents have done these kinds of things. And I I just want us to have a sense of perspective that we have tools for containing the damage. We we do. Would you would you cede us the fact that Trump is maybe I don't know fifty percent dumber than prior presidents? <laughs> <laughs> do I really have to take you back to Warren G. Harding, David? Yeah, Matthew, no. Are you going to require me to talk about Andrew Johnson's presidency? Yes, yeah, that's we, we love that, and I love it when people do that. They say, "Oh well, Andrew Johnson was a bad, pre-, you know, or uh, James Buchanan. He was a terrible president." And then there was the Civil so can I War. Say my very favorite deep state nerd thing was the securocrat tweeting out word that a tiara had been stolen somewhere and demanding to know my whereabouts at the time and whether I had an alibi. So 
Thank you, Deep State Nerds, for indulging me time and time and time again. Yeah, Corey has tiaras of her own in which will be in her permanent possession. She doesn't need to steal other people's tiaras. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, what kind of kleptocracy do you think we're running here? Though I, I gotta say, if someone breaks into the Tower of London and some tiaras go, go missing, I'm going to be knocking on Corey's door. I will have an airtight <laughs> alibi, I assure you. Yeah, believe me, the, the, the amount of letters we got here down in the mail room of, in the fourth sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark, <laughs> when Corey moved to within proximity of the Tower of London, there were a lot of people... <laughs> who are suspicious that she's like doing one of those scenes like Catherine Zeta-Jones with the lasers in that movie with, Sh- you know, where she's like learning how to... That is such a nice way to wrap in ermine, grubby work day me. Thank you, David. That's, well, it's just, I, I, that's the image I have of you practicing ninja moves in some darkened corner of... Double I, double <laughs> Um Okay, we have one more minute here, um, and I'm going to turn this minute over to Emily Brandwin, who is going to host, um, yeah, no, and, you, and the, you're on the spot here, um, and I'm going to tell Ian, don't edit this. Whatever she says, we have to use this. He's giving me a thumbs up. Um, you're going to, you're going to host, you know, Washington for beautiful people. And I'm going to give you 60 seconds to tell people why they should listen to it. (laughs) There's so much pressure knowing I'm not going to be edited. I feel like I have to, I want to like do one of my monologues in theater school. Um, (laughs) Washington for beautiful people. What were you going to, were you going to say something? No. I, I wasn't. I was. I was. I, I was actually thinking. Here's somebody who's been through the farm, trained by the CIA, and when maximum pressure comes on, she thinks, "I have to turn to my training in theater school." That's a I little... that. Or I was like, "Can I do my bat mitzvah half Torah?" One of the two. Um, I, so I am beyond, beyond, beyond excited. And you made fun of me for using the word excited many times about hosting Washington for Beautiful People because. Throughout the last couple of years, what I've been really heartened by with all of the sort of pessimism out there is that there's been so many great voices out there talking about the issues that really matter, giving it some awareness, really shining a light on it. And a lot of those voices are from my coast, the left coast. And so it's an opportunity for me to be able to talk to those those people, those voices, those thoughtful minds out in entertainment world in La La Land and also combining it with some of my friends back east in Washington and getting their thoughts and their perspective, but having it in a really, really tangible, fun conversation, talking about really what drove them to social activism, what drove them to really using their voice to elevating these issues, and also hopefully moments where we can inspire a change. We can inspire people to actually go out and make a change on their own as well, because I don't want it to be, I don't think anybody wants it just to be doom and gloom, so hopefully it'll be some moments and beacons of optimism and, of course, some humor as well. No, that's, look, this all begins, the 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 the, the sound of the first moment, of, you know, of Deep State Radio, the sort of the, the big bang moment of Deep State Radio is Corey's laugh. 
and everything emanates <laughs> from Corey's laugh. It's like starts with the laugh. In fact, Ian, we should make that the opening of that show. You know, it starts with Corey's laugh, and then we go from there into everything. So there is always its optimistic subtext. But are there going to be people from Hollywood who people will have heard of, big names from Hollywood, as well as you know, completely uh, anonymous nerds from Washington on the show? There'll be. I'm happy to say there'll be both nerds, and I consider myself one of those, as well as some big names. You I don't are, know if I should. You are. Yes, what? see? You are a nerd. You're getting the highest level of validation. Corey says you're a nerd. Oh, I've, I've always been a. I, look, I wore an eye patch when I was in school. Like, I, my nerd status, and I had that really, really young. Once you have an eye patch and really unfortunate hair, you're always a nerd. Always. Please. And I wore an eye patch twice, which makes me like a double nerd. Um, yeah, I have lazy eye, which, of course, my older brother loves because he's like, even your eye's lazy. Um, so, yes, I'm totally nerd. So we'll have some great names on. I've been reaching out to many, many people. I don't know if I should name the names until we do the oh, interview. No, so I'm keep a little them, superstitious. No, no. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll, we'll announce them as they come. But I have to say, okay. we've been, we've given this a lot of thought, and the names are great names, and it's going to be Good. great, and it's going to be a compliment to the work that we do here at um, the 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 main Deep State podcast. But you'll be able to get them all in the same feed, right, Ian? Yeah, it'll all be in the same feed, and um, uh, and uh, the you know the other podcast will be added in, and I think by mm, sometime in January there will be a brand new, fresh, delicious, nutritious, deep state radio podcast every day of the week. Um, and they will all offer the same brand of optimism and they will all um, uh, emanate from Corey's laugh as everything that we do here does and and should. I curtsy my thanks. Yeah, well, we, we, we curtsy our thanks right back at you because um, it always <laughs> lifts us up. So everybody, listen to Washington for Beautiful People. Listen to the next episodes of Deep State Radio. Listen to our one-on-ones, to our rants. Go to deepstateradionetwork.com. Go to the swag store. Great place to do Christmas shopping. Oh, my goodness. Nobody will want to come out of Christmas without their proper Deep State Radio um, swag. Uh, become a member, help to support us uh, so that when Emily goes out and meets with people to do this thing in Hollywood, she's able to do it in like a Bentley or something because there's so, you know, we have all those kind of resources. I get a Bentley? No, we'll, it'll be a deep state radio Bentley, but you could use it or we could do one of those rent-a-scooters. Um, but in yeah, the electric ones, you know, like in I Venice. I feel like a Bentley is so counter to the deep state, like... Yeah, you're right. That it should, in fact, be like a black minivan with, like, tinted windows. No, no, no. See, that's the difference between Deep State in the silo and Deep State for Beautiful People out in Los Angeles. Oh, she, good... she needs to rock it in something really, really deserving of her. So not my beat-up Prius. No, well, actually, in in Hollywood, a Prius is really kind of a status it's symbol. Pretty good. Um, it has some it has some wear and tear, but I feel like I feel like it may do. Well, for now, it will do. But if enough memberships yeah. <laughs> come in, the sky's the limit. It's up to you, Deep State nerds, to determine what it is that Emily's driving around out there on Rodeo Drive. In any event, <laughs> tune in for. Have you ever been to Rodeo Drive, Emily? And in, in, in I, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know the answer to that question. In any event, um, join us. Uh, come back soon. Thank you, Mika. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, nerds everywhere. We'll be back with you again sometime soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.